Genesis chapter 12 is that story of Abraham's very first calling. It's a story that's so short and so sweet, it's really easy to miss just how significant this moment is. But it is a moment in the beginning of the 12th chapter of the entire Bible. It's a moment that sets the stage for everything else that will happen it's one, then, that we really have to understand the significance of if we want to make sense of everything else that will happen. So, imagine for a moment that you are living in a pre-civilized world. You've grown up in this small tribe made up of your extended family, and you live or you die by the strength of your family and your tribe. Has anybody seen the Croods? You're back in that little family tribe, okay? And in this little family tribe of yours, death is going to be a very real and normal part of your life. There's no medication. The only food that you will have is food that your tribe can hunt or protect. And occasionally your tribe, they might be attacked by other neighboring tribes because the neighbor tribes, they need some more space or They need some more women to make more children because the only way to keep your tribe alive, your story, your identity alive is to have more children. In fact, for you, your children, and for them and the other tribes, their children were the only way to have any meaning beyond the emptiness of death. And you know you will die, probably sooner rather than later. And you hope maybe one day that you will be some kind of ancestor. It's what gives your life meaning. It's what gives your life purpose. But without children to start that next generation, there's only death for you. There's just nothingness. Your tribe, your story just ends at death. So everything you do in your life is about your tribe, just like it is for everyone else. You accumulate possessions. You fight little battles. You make alliances all in the name of preserving your tribe, your life, your identity, your purpose, all of it revolves around your tribe. And then one day, you hear this voice, or you have this vision, or some kind of holy longing stirs in you, and you think this must be the voice of one of the gods or one of your ancestors. You're not really sure, but you have a sense it is a divine voice, a holy voice, calling you to do the craziest thing, to leave your tribe. Everyone would tell you you're crazy. And not just because it's a hard world out there, but also because leaving is a kind of death. And even if you don't physically die, it's a break with all of your tribe and their story. But you do it anyway. Because there's this holy longing in you that won't let you go. And it's not just about leaving. It's actually a longing, an invitation into something entirely new. To the beginning of an entirely new kind of tribe. The kind of tribe that has been unimaginable before this point. A tribe that does not exist for its own self-preservation but a tribe that exists to be a blessing to all the other tribes. That's a crazy idea in that world. 
This is not how the world works. In fact, it's not how the world works in our time either, right? Our tribes, they exist for our own self-preservation and power and purpose. But this calling, this invitation that Abraham hears and responds to is to be the beginning of a different kind of tribe, a tribe whose identity and story will be about blessing all the other tribes of the earth. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, the holy voice says. This is a radical idea. And this moment then sets the trajectory for the entire rest of the Bible. This is the story. This is the calling that is lived out and it's wrestled with and it's pushed against at times and it's grown into over the unfolding, winding story of the Bible. And so here we come to one of the other really important interpretive principles for understanding what's going on in this book we call our Bible. The Bible, it has a trajectory. It has a direction, an overarching forward movement to it. It's pointing towards something. It has this direction of learning how to live out this great calling and learning who this God is that is doing the calling. That's happening over and over again in the unfolding pages of the Bible. So Abraham does not understand this calling or this God as well as Moses will. And Moses does not understand as well as Amos and Isaiah will. And Amos and Isaiah do not understand as well as, well as Mary and Martha will. And Mary and Martha, they don't understand as well as Paul will. And Aquila and Priscilla and Phoebe. There is this unfolding in the story of the Bible. And growing throughout the pages is a growing into this calling that's happening over and over again. So there's this trajectory that's happening as all these stories keep playing themselves out. But here's the thing. The story of this tribe, started here with Abraham, doesn't follow that trajectory in a very straight line. And so as you move through all the stories of the Bible... It's often what you see is there's three steps forward and two steps backwards happening. There's a detour where they go off in this direction and then they're called back and they're just sort of inching forward through the generations. They move forward and then they regress backwards. They wander off and get sidetracked and they get called back. They misunderstand and then they receive new guidance. And so there are some portions of the Bible that are pushing us forward and other forces and stories that are pushing backwards. It's why Rene Girard calls the Bible a text in travail. It's struggling with itself, struggling for something to be born, struggling in this slow, creeping, messy forward movement of the story of the Bible, which is why you cannot read every verse and even every individual story in the very same way. Remember what I said last week about how the Bible is this library of stories and letters and poems written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in two different languages on three different continents, with totally different cultures and economies and politics. 40 different authors with different psyches and motivations and desires all at work among them. 
So, of course, they are pushing against one another. That's why you can't just pull out one story and try to figure out, well, what did it mean in that one time and place? What did that one author mean? And then let's take a one-for-one application into our time. Now, that's how I grew up being taught I was supposed to read the Bible. You pull the one story out, you try to interpret it, and then you put it right down into our context. But that's not actually how the Bible works. You can't pull one story out and derive its fullest meaning by itself. You do need to understand the author's motivation and understand the context of the time and place, but you also have to understand how does this story fit in the trajectory of the Bible itself. So every passage, every portion of Scripture, it has to be read in relationship to the whole. You have to know, is this this a passage that's pushing us forward? Is it wandering off? Is it pushing backwards? How does it interact with the rest of the story? How does it fit into the overall direction? Is it a passage that's pushing us closer to the very heart of God? Or is this an example of being led off into the dark wood of error? Now, those are some interesting questions, aren't they? And I'm sure that you're sitting here processing this, and you're, you're probably asking one really good question because you're all good students. You're thinking, well, why in the world would the Bible include roads that lead to error? Or to put it another way, are you saying that some parts of the Bible are wrong? Or to put it another way, why would we keep the parts that point us in the wrong direction? Sure, you guys were all asking that, right? You were writing it down as you're processing this. I hope so, because that's actually where the whole thing starts to come to alive. Remember what I said last week about the Bible is actually about you and me. It's about us, how it is our story being revealed back to us. It's a mirror of our own soul. The Bible is this ancient library of poems, letters, and stories that mirror back our own life. And it lays out for us the pattern of spiritual growth and development. And let's be honest, none of us move in a straight line, do we? None of us move from doubt to faith to spiritual heroics and a constant forward movement of perfection without ever wandering off. No, we take three steps forward and two steps backwards We think we're following God's voice at times, and then we head off down the wrong road. That's what the Bible is actually trying to reveal back to us, that life with God is not lived in a straight line. It's always getting the point and then missing the point, as Richard Rohr puts it. It's God entering our lives and then us fighting it or avoiding it or running away from it. And the Bible helps us to come to grips with the fact that that's exactly what we have been doing. It's a mirror of our life, of your life and our life together and my life, and it helps us recognize, you know, maybe we were enslaved in Egypt and just didn't know it. Maybe we've been wandering around the wilderness for a while. Or we might think, you know, those foreigners among us are the problem, and if we just get rid of them, then everything will be better. We'll talk about that, how it comes up next week. Because, you know, we are special and we are God's uh, anointed people, all while forgetting that we are a part of a tribe that has been called to be 
a blessing to all those other tribes, not just perpetuate and protect our own tribe. Or we might just think that God is calling us to do something that God would never ask us to do. And that's the other story of Abraham I want to read to you today. 25 years after Abraham receives this calling, he has a son named Isaac. And that son is supposed to be the fulfillment of Abraham's promise with God, of the covenant. And this little boy of Isaac grows up and becomes a young man, which leads us into Genesis chapter 22. One of the most disturbing stories of Abraham's life. And I'm just going to read this to you. Genesis 22, 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham. God said to, Abraham, said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains that I will show you. So, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering and sent out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and Isaac himself carried, or, and he himself, Abraham, carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It's a rather disturbing story, isn't it? We don't like that story. I don't like that story. In fact, it's the kind of story, there's a lot others like it, which we first read and think, geez, what in the world is with the Bible? Why would someone read this stuff and think they're supposed to follow it? 
In fact, Rob Bell points out that a lot of people have said, you know, the Bible, it's primitive and it's barbaric. It's a book of fairy tales that we've moved way past. And so they just sort of ignore it. Completely missing all of the incredibly progressive and enlightened ideas that first enter human consciousness through the Bible. Ideas and ideals that we still fall quite short of today, they are still way ahead of much of our present consciousness and practice. But people miss that when they just discard the whole thing. Of course, then there are those other folks who cling so tightly to it and talk about how important and central it all is, but then they butcher it with their stilted literalism and stifling interpretations, assuming that, well, we need to read each passage like that and figure out what it meant and then go apply it to our life. But we're learning to read in a little different way, I hope, around here. Learning to ask different questions. Questions like, well, how does that story fit into the overall trajectory of the Bible? Is this a story pushing us forward in our God consciousness or pushing us backwards? And so we come to a passage like this. The question that we're tempted to ask at first is, why would God tell Abraham to go do that? It's a question that I think we've asked many times of the Bible. Well, why does God do this? Why does God do that? Why did God fill in the blank? But often that is the wrong question for us to ask of the Bible. The best question to ask is, why did they tell that story? And not only why did they tell it, why did they write this one down and keep it? Why did this passage endure among all the others? Why was it so important to them? You see how that's a different question? Why did God tell them to do that versus why did they tell this story and pass it down? So let's just start there with this little story. Why did they tell that? Now to answer that, let's go back to imagining we're a part of that tribe still living in that pre-civilized world where life depends on the crops you could grow and the herds you could keep. And let me give you just a really short lesson in the history of religious consciousness, if you will bear with me for just a minute. So in the pre-civilized world, you'd want to do whatever you could do to ensure you had a good crop and a healthy herd. And that means that whatever happens with the weather out there is going to start to have a big impact on your personal psyche because the weather's completely unpredictable, right? Some years there's rain, some years there isn't. Some summers are hot, some are scorching, and it all feels so very random to you. So you have a really good crop one year, and then you have a bad crop the next year, and you wonder, why? And so the belief starts to develop that there are these powers in the world. There are these forces that are just sort of playing with you and your life. A power that you start to describe as the gods. And then you decide, i got to do whatever I can to keep those gods on my good side. Or on their, stay on their good side. So if you have a bad crop one year, you decide, well, the gods must be mad at me. So I decide to make a sacrifice to those gods, hoping to get on their good side. But still, I had another bad year, which means I probably didn't sacrifice enough or they didn't like my sacrifice. And so you get a story like Cain and Abel. You remember that? Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God. Cain's sacrifice was not. Why? No reason is given. 
It's just random. That's just how it goes. Apparently, though, it just cable, uh, canes wasn't enough. You didn't do enough. And all that leads to a word that we <clears throat> are so familiar with, the word anxiety. Anxiety is deeply rooted in religious consciousness. But then let's say you have a really great year. You have lots of crops, and you think, well, the gods must be happy with me now. They're on my side. And to show them how grateful you are, you decide you better make another sacrifice. But how do you know how much? When is my gift enough? And now you have it again, anxiety. Either way, there is this anxiety that is connected to religion, anxiety about trying to keep the gods on your side and and you keep giving more and sacrificing more, trying to keep them from cursing you. And eventually, what is the most precious thing that you could sacrifice in order to appease the random forces of this world? Well, your child, of course. And so enters human sacrifice into human consciousness. All of that's in the backdrop of Genesis 22. This is the world that Abraham is living in. These are the assumptions that he lives with. You notice when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham didn't ask a single question about it. I think I would have some questions. (laughs) But not Abraham. He gets up and he doesn't. I imagine he's not happy about it, but he also doesn't seem surprised by the request. In fact, he knows what to do because this is what you do in his world. There isn't a need for questions. So what's surprising here is not that Abraham doesn't ask questions. What's really surprising is what Abraham then later says to his servant that is traveling with him. Stay here, he says, the boy and I, meaning Isaac, will go over there. We will worship, and then what? We will come back to you. We? What we? The boy's not supposed to be coming back. Something is stirring here. Makes you wonder if Abraham, after all these decades of wrestling with God and doubting God, Abraham's starting to just wonder, well, maybe God's up to something I can't understand. This God must be up to something unexpected because Abraham has already seen God come through in impossible ways. And of course, God is up to something. At just the last minute, God finally breaks through Abraham's ability to see his world differently and to think differently, and God stops that senseless act. God puts an end to that cycle. It's as if the angel is essentially saying, Abraham, I can see that you're faithful. You don't have to prove it to me. A human sacrifice is not needed. And so God provides a ram instead. And why? Well, Abraham thinks something has to be sacrificed, some way to express his devotion to God. So God provides a different way for Abraham to do that, a way in which Abraham can meaningfully connect with from his own self-understanding. You see, Genesis 22 is not a, a story that we're supposed to read and think, well, I guess I'm supposed to be willing to sacrifice one of my kids if God asks me. That kind of sounds crazy, but I remember wrestling with that as a young man. Would I give up everything for God? That's not what the story is about. It's actually just the opposite. It's a story where God is saying, I am not that kind 
of God. The other gods that you have been chasing in your life might be like that. They might ask the unimaginable of you, but I am not that kind of God. The God who has called you to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth is the God who is the very source of blessing and life, not curses and death. And the trajectory of the Bible moves forward. So why do they write that down and save it for generations? Because every generation still struggles with these same tendencies. We still do it today. We think, if I just pray enough, if I just follow God's rules enough, then God will bless me and whatever need I have, job, family, kids, hopes. If I just try a little harder, then God will fill in the blank. But from the very beginning, we have this story this ancient, beautiful, and actually radically progressive story that creates an earthquake in that kind of thinking, breaking open this huge crack right in it, because what the Bible is actually trying to help us understand is that God is not like that. What the Bible actually is revealing to us in this overall forward movement is that there is nothing you can do to make God love you and bless you more. And there's nothing you could do or have done that will make God curse you or love you less. Because God is love and blessing and life. Do you see how easy it is to read it, though, the wrong way and come to some really awful conclusions? Especially if you just pulled that one story out, read it all by itself, without the context of the whole larger story of the Bible it could lead to some really awful things. We didn't understand that this story is written by people with a particular kind of worldview, wrestling with particular questions. There is this ancient story, and it seems primitive and awful because it is in many ways, but it's also an incredibly progressive story that is trying to point us in the right direction. The Bible wants us to see that God is not playing with your life because God is the source of blessing and life. So this is where we are at the very end of week two in our series. The Bible's not an answer book, and the Bible's not static. Not all parts are the same. It's a story about a tribe of people called to be a different kind of tribe, a tribe that blesses the whole world, and they will get it right, and they will get it wrong, and they'll take three steps forward and two steps back, and they will move down the very messy road of trying to live out this calling, because that's what it looks like to be a human being in this world, trying to follow this mysterious God, and through all the twists and turns, there'll be these amazing breakthroughs, and the story will leap forward, but it doesn't mean that there was an arrival, so stay with it along the way. Keep reading it and allow it to keep reading your own soul and along the way your capacity for making sense of your life and for God in the midst of it will grow and deepen and every now and then something profound might break through on you, something that opens you up, 
something that changes the way you see God in this world of ours and, and shapes you into a fuller blessing for the world, a fuller blessing for all people, the very kind of blessing that God has created you and called you to be.